0: So I was that person that was used to having like these amazing job opportunities and, and getting sort of like what I was going after. But when I was in this role and trying to figure out what my next step was gonna be, I was interviewing for positions and I was not getting those positions. I remember interviewing for this position at Fuse Network. I knew some people higher up on the chain there and everything, and I was like, I got this, you know? But then I guess what? I found out that the hiring manager for the position I just interviewed with she knew the head of my department. They were friendly, friendly. You know what I mean? So I found that out and I was like, okay, that probably did not work in my favor. I had this kind of aha moment when I found out I didn't get that job. I was like, you know what? I think God is trying to tell me something.
1: Hi there, it's Sewa and welcome to episode 54 of the She's Off Script podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Ayana Angel. When I was first thinking about leaving my corporate job, Switch, Pivot, or Quit was one of the first podcasts by a woman of color I came across fast forward a year, here I am talking to Ayanna on my own show. It really feels like such a full circle moment for me. I got a chance to meet her at an event here in Dallas and I'm so glad she was able to fit this interview into her schedule. Ayanna not only hosts a top rated show of her own but has also launched Maisie Media which is a podcast network that features shows by women of color in the areas of business, beauty, self-help, and health and wellness. In this interview, Ayana shares it all, from how she has written multiple books to her advice for women newly stepping into entrepreneurship. So start your cars, grab your snacks, or put the kids to bed because it's going to be a good one. Before we hear the rest of Ayana's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes. This will help spread the word about our podcast so amazing stories like Ayana's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off script with Ayana Angel, host of the Switch Pivotal Quick podcast and founder of Maisie Media. Ayana Angel, welcome to She's Off Script. How are you? I'm very well, thank you,
0: and thank you for having me.
1: I'm glad you could you could be here. We actually met at the Boss Woman Media's conference in Dallas a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'm excited that we could make this work. But for anyone out there who hasn't heard of you or your podcast, could you share who you are and what you do?
0: Sure. So that's one of those full questions. It's like those the big question, right? right it's almost right. like what does your life consist of? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, as you mentioned, my name is Ayana Angel, and I'm a former sports entertainment publicist turned traditionally published author. And as a result of that transition, I ultimately found myself in the podcasting space hosting this podcast called Switch, Pivot, or Quit because I had done just that. And uh, as a result of sort of seeing the space uh, that I was in when I entered into podcasting and part of the reason that I entered into podcasting is I'm a talker I like to talk so it was my medium that would work best for me um, I noticed that there was a lack of female voices at the forefront as well as women of color so I created this network called Maisie Media where I hope to continue to amplify the voices for women and women of color and continue to create content that speaks to us and tells our stories stories and just really puts us at more of the forefront, even if it is not what is normal for mainstream media, if you will.
1: Hmm. And I know I definitely want to delve into more about Maisy Media later on, but you have had quite a career. So spanning the PR industry, publishing, now entrepreneurship in the form of podcasting and media again. Mm-hmm. So outside of all those things that you're working on, I would love to know who is Ayanna Angel and what was your life like growing up? Oh, my life growing up. Uh, no one's really
0: asked me that. Um, that's funny. I am one of three siblings, so I'm the oldest girl, and that brought its own trials and tribulations because my parents were learning with me. Right? Mm. I think my mom was 23 when she had me, and she, her, and my dad were just trying to figure it out. And so also, um, my dad, who I am closely connected with, like see all the time, talk to all the time. That's actually my stepdad, but I never referred to him as my stepdad because that's the man who raised me. That's the father that I know. Mm -hmm. And so when they decided, when they got married and started having kids and everything, our world kind of like changed drastically. And some of the things that that looked like for me was this responsibility. You know, I was helping my mom. At one point, my mom had two babies in diapers. Um, so my youngest brothers are back to back. So I knew a lot of responsibility early on. And it wasn't the type of situation where my mom depended on me, but it was this type of situation where you understand that we're family and I'm gonna carry my responsibilities to do what I can to contribute, you know, to this family unit. So early on, I knew that uh, I didn't want the responsibility of like having my own child at a young age. So that that helped me to navigate sort of like those early, those teenage years, those early 20 years, all of that. I knew responsibility, but I knew what kind of responsibilities I wanted to have and what kind I didn't want to have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So... I ended up going to Cal State Long Beach for college, which was, which I'm from Northern California, and so that was Southern California. So it was a little ways away, but not, nothing like, you know, going out of state. But it still furthered my independence and mm. my uh, ability to depend on myself and my decision making skills. I was able to grow those. And um, within that space, I decided that I wanted to do business and marketing. And a part of that was because my dad basically told me he wasn't paying for me to get some kind of like arts degree. He was
1: like, no, we're not doing that. No, right. wait, and not his money's he's like, what are you going to even do with yeah. that? Don't what waste my do money. Yeah,
0: exactly. He's like, no, we're not doing that. So with those parameters, I kind of knew I had to do something that would feel creative enough for me, but also would check those boxes for my family and my parents in terms of what they thought I'd be qualified to do upon like graduating and getting this degree because like so many other households especially of that time because now I feel like things are a little bit different Mm -hmm. the emphasis was really put on get a get a career under your belt, get something that you are qualified to do and then get out there and do it and do it for as long as you need to do it and make your money and create a comfortable life for yourself. You know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. about, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do? Like those were not questions that I felt like my parents talked to me about. So it was more get yourself to a place where you can be financially independent.
1: Mm -hmm. And,
0: uh, And that's exactly what I did. But after going through all of those hurdles and just checking those boxes, I quickly realized about maybe 10 years-ish into my PR career, having done PR from LA to New York, I realized that this wasn't going to be the end for me. I had created this jewelry line on the side as my side hustle, and it was getting some good buzz and good features. So Beyonce wore it. It was in Vogue. Mm. Um, people like Lauren Hill wore it, all these different things. And I started to really realize that that was bringing me alive. You know, um, Mm. that was sparking something in me that I hadn't seen in a while and that I wanted to see, but I just didn't know how to tap back into it. And so doing photo shoots and creating pieces and going to different events and displaying the jewelry and all these things that really made me say, okay, you need to tap back into your creative side and what does that look like? So that kind of put me on this journey of self-discovery and discovering what was next for me. So why jewelry though? How did you get into that? You know, it's so funny. I can't say that there's a specific reason other than my roommate at the time, who's one of my good girlfriends, close girlfriends. We were both just into looking cute in our fashions, right? Mm -hmm. And we were both creative with our hands and also like revamping things and stuff like that, like in your wardrobe. Mm -hmm. So I think jewelry just felt approachable for us. And it was also a moment where, um, having big statement pieces was, it was having, it was starting to have a voice, but people hadn't really tapped into it yet. Mm -hmm. And so we saw an opportunity to kind of do something and work with some things that weren't being worked with yet. I mean, we were working with different types of materials, different types of metals. We were doing things that were just out of the box and we got a kick out of it. Mm -hmm. We really got a kick out of the reactions we would get. You know, you go to like a festival in Brooklyn and you got on these like, like earrings that like nobody's ever seen before these big flowers and stuff like that and it's like what who, where where did this come from what I is it you know? when
1: the queen be herself wears one of your jewelry pieces <laughs> that that's validation right there if nothing else right exactly so how did that come to a close then the jewelry line So it came to a close because we
0: had all these great press features, right? And we were popping up in different places and people were requesting our jewelry and all these amazing things were happening. But we did not have the skill set, if you will, or the resources to take this brand to the next level. Mm. And so if you don't have those and you're lacking those things, eventually, we did it for a number of years, eventually it becomes like a glorified hobby. Yes. Because you're spending your money that you're getting from working your nine to five, you're spending your money investing in this business. But this business is not generating enough revenue for you to take that revenue and then invest it back into the business. So we had to make a hard decision. You know, it was one of those things where I think it served its purpose for the time. I can say definitely for me it did because it showed me what was possible, it mm-hmm. showed me what else I could be doing, and it also showed me that. I was playing a little too small in the space that I was in because that was comfortable for me. But there was a whole nother world out there that I could tap into if I would just be willing to take some chances and tap into it.
1: Oh, that's so much was said right there, especially when you think about when people first get their hands into a side hustle and it doesn't work. Sometimes it's discouraging to them, and they feel like, okay, I guess I'm not cut out for this. But I Mm -hmm. think you're proof that if you stick with it, look where you are now. You may have to switch, pivot, or quit, right? But you may get to an even higher point. So, kind of taking you back to your time in PR, I think I read that you know, probably halfway through your PR career, you just started to get burnt out and you're watching colleagues leaving left and right, but you stayed. Why did you stay after that point?
0: I stayed largely because I was working on that side hustle Mm. and also because I didn't know if this side hustle was going to pan out and be the thing to help me transition into moving out of that PR position Mm -hmm. or if I was going to just transition into another type of PR entertainment related type of role. And this is why I always tell people that you do have to have that patience. Sometimes you do have to ride out those things that are extremely uncomfortable and those things that you hate doing. Like I used to wake up in the morning, like oh just dreading the day because I did not want to do what was ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Um but at that time I also didn't really tap into mindset as much as I do now. Um, I was trying to but I didn't even have the skill sets. I didn't even really know what that looked like. I didn't have the tools. So it just really all of this like staying put where I was put me in a position to learn a lot about myself and it put me in a position to really start to understand what was going on around me and um and channel some things that I think when things are easy for you, you're not forced to channel those things because mm-hmm. why why do you need to? You know, you, you just don't need to. So um those hard times and those challenging times, although people say like, oh, it builds character and all of that and that sounds fluffy and phony and like yeah, right, whatever. I don't I want to go through that. It truly does give you something that's priceless. It truly does build up something in you that's priceless that no other circumstance can build up in you. So the reason that I stayed wasn't just me saying, I'm going to stay put. It was because I was trying to do other things, but I was also trying to see what was going to work out. And I was going on job interviews and stuff. And I was the type of person before that position who would typically get job that i went out for like Mm -hmm. when i had the offer for this role at the nba i also simultaneously had a a role offer for a role at a record label Mm -hmm. so i had to choose between the two these would both be amazing experience working at a record record label or working at the nba it's like okay you know you kind of can't go wrong with either one So I was that person that was used to having like these amazing job opportunities and and getting sort of like what I was going after. But when I was in this role and trying to figure out what my next step was going to be, I was interviewing for positions and I was not getting those positions. I remember interviewing for this position at Fuse Networks and I went in there. I knew knew some people higher up on the chain there and everything. And I was like, I got this, you know, Mm -hmm. but then I guess what? I found out two things. I found out that the hiring manager for the position I just interviewed with, she knew the head of my department.
1: Oh no. In retrospect, you just, the truth comes out. Wow. And they were
0: were friendly, friendly. You know what I mean? So I found that out and I was like, okay, that probably did not work in my favor
1: because job seekers nightmare.
0: Exactly. (laughs) He didn't know I was interviewing. And he was one of those people who would try and kind of like, put a little salt in your game. If he knew you were trying to leave, he'd be Mm -hmm. like, why, why would you ever want to leave? Like he was one of those people. So that was one thing. And then the next thing was I had this kind of aha moment when I found out I didn't get that job. I was like, you know what? I think God is trying to tell me something. I'm, if I were to get that job, I would potentially end up in the same position that I'm in right now, Mm -hmm. looking for something else a few years down the line. And I said, you know, I think that there's something more out here for me. I just got to figure out what that looks like because staying in this space is being content. And right. I think I'm, I'm growing out of that season of being content. So that's why these positions aren't working out for me because I need to stay the course of trying to figure out truly in my heart what's next and not just jumping from one opportunity
1: to the next because mm-hmm. it's there. Oh, that's such good advice because some people don't take the time to understand why they're unhappy where they currently are. Mm -hmm. And they jump into the same situation once again. And there you go. You're just in a a cycle over and over again. So now, soon after you left the NBA, you landed a book deal. Mm -hmm. You wrote a steamy novel called Preseason Love. (laughs) Would you (laughs) mind sharing just how you went from working in the NBA to actually landing that published deal? gosh so this was me really taking
0: a chance on myself so i had been working on this this novel writing it for about 9 months before i quit my job every morning i was wor- waking up an hour before i needed to so that i could work on this novel uninterrupted not distracted by oh drinks after work happy hour after work you know mm-hmm. all the things right so i spent time working on it and i was very diligent about working on it because i knew that i had a goal and my goal was to be traditionally published. I was also reading books about getting traditional publishing deals, how the publishing world works, all of that, because I knew nothing about it. This world mm. was foreign to me. So when I finally realized I am at the end of writing this book, I love where it is. Um, I said, okay, now is the time for me to make this move. Now I made the move and put in my two week notice without having anything even in the works, really, you know, nothing super concrete. I just felt like I needed to take this chance on myself. And I really, really believed in myself, like wholeheartedly. And I also, one of the things that I also did was while I was working on writing this book, I was also taking writing classes, and I took this workshop, this boot camp, this writing boot camp um, in Maryland. I rode the bus from New York to Maryland, to rented a car, drove from my friend's house to this workshop to take this workshop. That I didn't know what it was gonna net me, right? Mm-hmm. But I felt like this is a this is a notable author. I should take this workshop. I did. At that workshop, I met a publishing director who I said, I'm not ready yet, but in a few weeks, maybe even a couple months, I will be ready. My my manuscript is being edited right now, and I'm going to bring it to you. And she said, amazing. And so when that, when that manuscript was actually ready, I brought it to her. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I should also mention in between was I was soliciting my story and my book. Two literary agents. I was sending out query letters. And one a lot of agents requested what they'll do is request either partial or your full manuscript. Mm -hmm. A lot of agents requested the partial. And one agent got back to me while I remember I was sitting at, it was during the NBA finals, I was in Miami sitting in a hotel, our hotel like conference room office thing, and I got this email from this agent that said, I love the book, but I can't sell it as it is right now. Mm. And I was crushed. So basically what he was telling me was it wasn't ready because it needed to be edited. I didn't know or I didn't think that I needed to get it edited and send Mm -hmm. him that before actually sending him anything. And it works similar to the music industry now. Record labels want to sign you if you already popping right? Mm-hmm. They want you to have a fan base already. Right. So it was similar. They wanted me to have everything pretty much sealed and packaged and then bring mm-hmm. it to him. And then he would, you know, shop it to these different editors or publishers, publish, publishing houses. And so that crushed me, but that let me know what my next step needed to be. So my next step was to get someone to edit my book. So by the time I went to this writing workshop and boot camp. I already had somebody editing my book, a professional mm-hmm. editor, and it cost me a lot of money. It was a huge investment for me, but I was like, this is what I need to do. So then when I got on the other side of both of those things and that book was edited, I said, okay, now I'm going to really shop it around aggressively. Mm-hmm. And so in four months, it, this, it was four months between the time where I left my job to the time where I got this publishing deal. And I was really naive about what I had even done. I didn't even realize what I'd done Mm. until I went to my editor when I got the, the email from, um, the publishing director saying, we love it. We want to publish the book. I went to my editor and I was like, and she was a vet editor in the game. And I was like, her name is Rakia. I was like, Rakia, like, is this good? And she's like, are you kidding me? I, I know tons of authors right now who would kill to be in your position. And I was like, oh, okay. Okay. So this is good. This is
1: good. Okay. Sometimes being naive just plays in your favor. Because you don't because, understand how yes. large or how high the hurdles are that you have to overcome.
0: Absolutely. So then it couldn't be a barrier in my mind. Exactly. It couldn't be something that was working against mm-hmm. me in my mind because I didn't even know the the hurdle that I was up against. Mm-hmm. And so when it all came down to it, my book was published just shy of a year after basically starting my process and apparently that was unheard of as well because a book can take about a year from the time that they start talking to you until it's actually published. Mm. So everything for me was fast tracked and I'm so grateful and blessed for it to have happened like that. So that's sort of how I went from working in this nine to five to really knowing what I wanted to do when I left. And, and believe me, I am always the person that side eyes like certain things that sound too good to be true or Mm -hmm. whatever. Somebody that I manifested this and I'm like, did you really, you know, I'm like a complete side eyer. but Mm -hmm. I can tell you for sure. When I look back, I have the utmost confidence that I did manifest that situation and that me speaking positive and being very, very clear about what Mm -hmm. I wanted with anybody that I spoke to that is what got me that publishing deal and got me an And Ayanna,
1: you clearly worked so hard on it. The fact that you took a bus and rented a car and went out (laughs) of your way to put yourself in front of the right people, wrote for a year or nine months. I mean, you have have to put in the work so when the opportunity presents itself, you are ready. Absolutely. Had you not done all that stuff, I mean, manifest it. I mean, you can manifest as much as you want. You probably wouldn't Mm -hmm. have done the same outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, true, very true. But also, then, in writing this book, mm-hmm. I know you kind of have to glean from personal experiences when you're writing, you know, work right. of fiction, but mm-hmm. I kind of have to. <laughs> I kind of have to ask how close to reality the scenario of the weekend trip in the arms of the millionaire star athlete is, because you did work for the NBA. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I like to say that all fiction come from, comes from a place of reality.
1: Of course, of this. course. You know, but how closely um, tied to reality is it?
0: Um. You know, I don't, I don't, it was all in my imagination. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Ayanna, you're
0: giving me the, I don't kiss and tell look. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's, that was, I think the beauty of that book was because I had come from this industry mm-hmm. and I will freely say I was the only black woman on my team doing PR, not that there weren't other black women let's say that worked for a team, an NBA team or um, like TNT or different broadcasters or things like that. But as an NBA publicist within my team, I was the only black woman. And so I definitely experienced some things and saw some things and all of that stuff. And I do feel like it gets tricky when you're the only black woman because the sport is made up of what, let's just say 99.9% Black men, mm-hmm. you know, and so I feel like there's also this set of eyes that you have on you because you are who you are, Absolutely. no matter what you do, no matter how you present, it's Absolutely. like, oh, you know, and so I was very, very aware of that. And I also was aware of that in writing this book and in presenting this book to the world because I knew that I could speak to this industry, if you will, and tell this story from a lens that nobody else could.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and that was that was my appealing. that was my niche. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so now I do understand why they picked it up so quickly because I I personally I read a lot and I personally haven't read many books from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, So you've since written other books. And I'm also curious now, you already had the existing Simon & Schuster relationship. Why did you choose to self-publish your subsequent books as opposed to going back and trying to get it traditionally published?
0: That was mainly because when I first went out and said, okay, I'm going to get this book published or I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to write this book. Everybody was saying to me, oh, well, you know, know, self-publishing is a thing. Even agents. I even met and became friendly with agents who said the same thing to me, but I was really, really set on establishing myself as an author by being a traditionally published author right? Um, Because I knew that self-publishing was a thing, but I also knew that um, almost anybody could do it, right? So for me, my only goal was to have my very first book traditionally published. Mm -hmm. After that, I was like, it's fair game. I'll do what I want to do, you know? And sometimes... The publishing process can be very long, as I mentioned. It can take a year plus to get a book out. So if you're somebody who has something, an idea or a project that you're sitting on and you don't want it sit on it forever and you don't want it to take too long, self-publishing allows you to put it in your own hands and crank it out as fast as you see fit, right? So for me, with the subsequent books, I didn't really even consider traditional publishing because I knew how much work I put in Mm-hmm. to move units for preseason love and i said you know if i'm going to go the traditional route it's going to be much later if i try that again it'll be mm-hmm. much later because i know that i had to do a lot of the legwork on my own to promote that book anyway preseason love mm-hmm. so i just figured why even bother at the time you know if if you're if you're looking let's say someone who's listening is looking to get their book traditionally published, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, I can tell you for sure, you are only going to get the kind of support that you see celebrities get if you're a celebrity Mm. or if you're a celebrity author someone like a Jen Sincero or something like that who has made countless New York Times best-selling author types of situations possible for themselves and things like that Mm -hmm. and people are clamoring to talk to you or to read your work or whatever, then you will get the full 100% complete support of any publishing house and they will bend over backwards for you. But if you're the average author, you have to earn your keep. You have to to work your way up to that kind of Right? Mm-hmm. And what that, what that really means is you have to do a lot of the legwork yourself. And so knowing that, I said, I'm just going to
1: self-publish. I was also curious about that. When you think about your, the distribution or the reach of your novel or even the revenue generated from your, from your novel, as in what ended up in your pocket, mm-hmm. what, how does it compare to self-publishing?
0: Well, the distribution is the the positive for traditional publishing, right? Because mm-hmm. my, my book, Preseason Love, was in Target and in Barnes and & Nobles. And it was in Walmart and all these different places that it's hard to get in if you are doing it indie and doing it on your own. Um, but traditional publishers typically give you a um, – they give you a – what am I, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Not a signing bonus.
1: <laughs> and an advance. Begin.
0: Advance, mm, exactly. There you, go. there you go. They give you an advance. You have to sell through your advance before you make money. Before you make any royalties on your book, you have to sell out the advance, the money that they paid you up front in the advance money. Mm-hmm. Then you start making a portion of the profits from that book. So, when you think of it from a self-publishing perspective, if you already have a decent audience and you know how much you it took you to invest to actually create this book, whether it be to get it edited, to get it um, to get a cover done and completed for you or mocked up, um, to get it formatted, all those things, if you know what that cost is and you think you can sell through that on your own, then everything after that is your money that you're receiving, and you don't have to wait for anybody to cut Mm -hmm. you any checks you don't have to wait for them to send you royalty statements and all that it's just up it's it's in your pocket Mm -hmm. and you can promote it as much as you want and you'll see the direct results because you can go right in your account and see how many units you move based off of xyz promotion you just did you Mm -hmm. can see real-time numbers whereas with a traditional publisher they distribute all the information to you and you can request information, but how often do people really do that? You know, you don't want to be that annoying person. And so you're just kind of left to guess and see if the things that you're doing are working and moving Mm -hmm.
1: the needle. So Mm. it's a different beast. (laughs) It really is. And you make a strong case for that for sure. Um, I want to also just pivot a little bit here. Mm -hmm. Today you produced a top, rated podcast and you host it. Talk to me about why you felt the need to launch the podcast when you first launched it. Was it in 2015 that you first started? Uh,
0: No, I started in 2017.
1: 2017.
0: Okay. Yes. Yes. So I felt the need to launch this podcast because I realized that quickly when I started on this freelance journey, and I'm going to say freelance because I never set out to be an entrepreneur. So when I set out on this freelance journey, I realized how much you didn't have the support that you thought you would have, right? And how hard it is to get people to get behind you sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I said, gosh, I just wish that there were more conversations about supporting women, supporting women, and supporting each other without a quid pro quo, without mm-hmm. needing to get something in return, right? And so for me, I said, I want to be a part of that conversation. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. So before all the women's empowerment uh, accounts and the movement and the talk and everything on social media, namely Instagram, I just started this account where I would big up other women and and say, hey, you're doing amazing work. Keep doing what you're doing. People I didn't even know, you know, Mm -hmm. and just started this, this laying this groundwork for positive conversation and just us championing each other. Mm. And so that kind of turned into me thinking, I want another medium to, to have these continued conversations. And that's how the podcast ended up coming to life. And then from there, I realized that I was uniquely positioned to talk about making a switch, pivot, or quit. And I really wanted to share those stories of women who had done just that. So even when I launched the Switch, Pivot, or Quit podcast, my whole goal was to be able to speak to women who were sitting at their desk, just like I was when I was sitting in Midtown Manhattan on Fifth Avenue on the 14th floor, looking out the window, thinking, what am I going to do next, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wanted a podcast that would speak to her. I wanted a podcast that she would want to listen to. I wanted a podcast that would inspire her or give her some tools or help her throughout this journey or let her know that she wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. So that was the f- the whole through line with creating the Switch, Pivot, or Quit podcast for me.
1: I have to tell you, that girl was me where... Mm. I was searching for so many podcasts just to get inspiration, just to get a a sense for how are people making this transition. And I mentioned to you before we started recording that I had found yours, I'd found Michaela's from Side Hustle Pro, and I think I'd found my leaks. And I want to touch on this later, but I'm sure there are more and there were more at that time, but they weren't that easy to find. Right. So I think there is maybe an issue there about amplifying our message there as well. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. for people who are now thinking about starting their own podcast, I would love your take on reasons why you think they should and should not throw their hat in the ring.
0: Okay, so let's start with should not. The reasons why I think you should not throw your hat in the ring is Mm -hmm. if you're someone who's looking for a quick come up. If you're someone who is not really deeply rooted in the conversations that you want to have and if you are just looking at, your podcast as a potential marketing tool for your coaching business or something like that, mm-hmm. I don't think that you'll have longevity in it because you're not going to see, typically you're not going to see the type of results that you want to see right away that will make you think it's moving the needle for you, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's hard to say that you should start a podcast if you're somebody who does not see yourself doing it long term. If you don't have a through line or a message that you want to convey or a conversation that you're deeply rooted in that you really feel like needs to be out there, mm-hmm. um, if you're not one of those people, then I think that it, it will be hard for you to start a podcast and really stick with it. So that's why I would say you shouldn't do
1: it, right? There's the probably stick ton- with it part is key.
0: Yeah. And there's probably a ton of other reasons that I could list why you shouldn't, but that's just my main one. Um, reasons that you should. Mm-hmm. If you think that podcasting as a medium is a voice, is a, a space that works for you in the voice that you have, amazing. You should do it. Be, have a self-awareness, though. Do you have a voice that people want to listen to? Do you have some kind of tick that might make your voice annoying? You know what I mean? Or oh, are you someone who is really super relatable and has easy conversations with other people? Because the cringiest thing is listening to an interview when somebody, it just feels awkward. And it's like, they don't even know what to say next. And they don't know where to take this conversation. They don't know how to lead a conversation. It's like, oh my God, turn it off, turn it off. You know? So um I feel like if you're somebody who knows that talking to other people, engaging with them and really connecting with them Mm -hmm. is a strength of yours, you should absolutely do it. I'm the type of person, most of my friends, if we haven't talked in a while, we will easily be on the phone for two hours. That's how we do. Yep. You know, so I'm a talker. It's just in my nature. If you're a talker and it's in your nature, you should probably think about podcasting. But there's a caveat there you should also not podcast just because you want to hear yourself talk.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. It's not about you. It's about the people on the other side of the phone or the headphones, right? If
0: if you're going to do interview style, you don't want to bring people on and then constantly keep talking about your own story or relating everything back to you. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. So if you're going to be narcissistic about it, don't even do it. Don't Mm -hmm. even do it. Um, But if you're someone who has also a um, a storyline or a subject matter or something that you're really passionate about and you feel like it's underrepresented, or you feel like you could do the conversation justice by bringing in these stories or these additional voices on the topic or what have you, do it absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who can be passionate about connecting with other people and bringing them to the forefront do it. If you're somebody who is um, a self-starter and if you're somebody who is committed to kind of like staying the course, do it. Because mm-hmm. podcasting, there is a problem with discoverability at this point. Yeah. It it's not the podcasting channels, when you're going on there to look and search and find something, they are not as robust as a Google or a YouTube. Mm-hmm. You even sort of think about something and start typing it into YouTube, you're probably gonna find what you're looking for. Absolutely. The- the podcasting search engines just aren't the same way. So there's there's still that um, room for growth in that space, mm-hmm. which means and how that translates to you as a creator is people may not find you as easy by just going on and looking for a new podcast. Mm-hmm. It may have to be through a suggestion of another person. It may have to be Um, through an article that was written about you. It may have to be through some other channel that you couldn't even possibly think of, which means that it might take you more time to grow. And -hmm. if you're also looking to get into podcasting to make money, I would say that that's probably not the best medium for you to try either Mm -hmm. because it's still growing. It's still like the wild, wild west. There's a lot to be learned and uncovered. And there is no billboard charts of podcasting, right? So even with the billboard charts now or with just record sales, rec- artists don't have to sell as many records as they once did. I feel like in order to go gold, right? Right now, mm-hmm. those numbers seem like, oh, okay. Like a YouTube video gets those numbers, right. you know? But but the thing is, is that you have all these other ways to consume their work, Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: With podcasting, there's one way to consume your work, right? Meaning, it's just this digital way, and that's it, right? And there's just specific platforms where people listen. Most people listen through Apple, iTunes, and if you're thinking that you're gonna do crazy, ridiculous numbers on every episode, it's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. The average person only does like, let's say, about it. I'm gonna say 150 downloads per episode because it's somewhere it's a it's like 157 or something like that it's like some odd number but that's for the average person the average podcaster so when you look and you see all these people doing major numbers or what you think are major numbers and having all this visibility with their podcast maybe they're getting their podcast turned into a network show or this or that and you're thinking oh i want to get in the game i should be doing that too I am not trying to burst your bubble, but I am saying that that is not the average experience. So be mindful of that. If you're mm-hmm. going into it thinking that that is going to be your experience and that's why you're doing it, check yourself. Check mm. yourself before you get your feelings hurt.
1: <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That in itself can be like its own podcast, why you should not should not jump on this bandwagon. Yeah. The biggest one that always rings true for me is if you're not there for the long haul, you probably shouldn't do it because it does take time to, I mean, it's easy to start. It's just, mm-hmm. can you be consistent? Can you continue to refine? Can you continue to grow? Um, that's the key. Yeah, but, absolutely. So you've also mentioned, you, all, you mentioned something about the average podcast receives 157 or so downloads per episode. And I've also heard of podcasters who say, okay, it's not a priority for me to be top 10 on the Apple or iTunes charts. And as someone who, for you, who's building a podcast network, what key performance indicators or metrics are you looking at when you bring in new podcasts, if it isn't necessarily their downloads?
0: You know, that's something that I can't exactly break down at this point because it's more of a feeling.
1: Mm. It's
0: more of, do I feel like someone has the potential that I would want to see for growth? Um, So you're right. It's not exactly about the numbers, but it's about the feeling. It's about the content. What Mm -hmm. kind of content are they putting out there? How passionate do I think they are about this content? Do they already have people listening and connecting with this content? And so, you know, right now for me, Yes, we are in a growth stage with Maisie Media, but we're also not in a heavy acquisition stage stage where we're trying to get all of these podcasts that are out there um, that we want to have on the network just to say we have tons of podcasts by women Mm -hmm. of color on our network. Like, no, that's not the name of the game. So for me, it, it really does vary. And because I'm not looking proactively like that, something has to speak to me. Mm. something has to jump out to me to say, I like this, this this could work, or I see where this is going, or I see
1: where it could go. Okay. I mean, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. If you're going to be working with them day in, day out, you have to feel like there's a rapport there and you have to see the potential in yourself. Because mm-hmm. sometimes the numbers lie. Yeah. The numbers can be bought. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. better to be sure and have that gut feeling. Um, mm-hmm. But you also talked about, bringing people under your network, could you talk about the trend in general that we're seeing where podcasts are moving under more established publishers like Spotify, The Ringer, and Luminary that just came out as well? Um, mm-hmm. Should us little guys still try to do it solo or should we be starting today? And if we're starting today, should we start thinking about joining one of those networks?
0: I think the little guys still should do it solo. Mm. I think there's there should be nothing that says to you, I don't want to do this or I don't want to start this because I'm not with a major podcasting network. I think a lot of the podcasting networks exist because of opportunity, because of business opportunity, really, mm-hmm. right? This is what, if people see money in something, they're going to create a lane for themselves. And I think that's a lot of what's happening, but also because people are trying to get together um, groups of people that work. and and I'm gonna speak for Maisie Media, from the discoverability aspect. So if you like Switch, Pivot, or Quit, chances are, You are a woman of color who might like something else that is on the Maisie Media Podcast Network. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
0: then if you're able to go over there to MaisieMedia.com, you can quickly discover some other things that you may be interested in listening to versus having to ask a friend, what have you been listening to? Oh, what have you been listening to? Can Mm -hmm. somebody recommend? And that was one of the reasons why I created Maisie because so many people were tagging me because they wanted to discover more women-led podcasts. And so you have all of these people who are now starting networks that cater to um, politics or to niches, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because, because of that community feeling and being able to offer something in a community versus a silo, right? There's, there's strength in that. But I think that if you still have that strong voice and that passion behind the stories that you want to tell or the voice that you want to amplify, you should still get out there and do it as an indie um, podcaster because all networks are set up and created differently. So you may think, oh, gosh, I really want to be under a network, but you may have two or three different conversations where two or three different networks offer completely different things, and then you have to decide, what's the value in this for me? Mm -hmm. What am I actually looking for? So I think there is something to be said about starting on your own and really kind of getting your footing in the space knowing where you show up, how you want to show up, who you want to be associated with, what you want to do versus what you don't want to do before you try and put yourself under a larger umbrella. And then you automatically have to play by their rules.
1: Mm -hmm. So you said something that kind of piqued my interest. What's in it for you? Could you speak to that? What's the revenue model like for these podcast networks versus what the actual financial value and reach value the podcasters get from the networks is it all about ads or what is it
0: most podcasts make their their money off of uh, revenue from advertisers right that's that's the the most plain way that you're going to make money. But, um, you also have to be mindful that in order for a advertiser to want to advertise on your podcast, you have to do some kind of numbers and it goes off of CPM. CPM mm-hmm. is cost per thousand. So if you're not doing thousands in downloads anyway, you're probably not even going to have a conversation with the network. Mm -hmm. You're just because they don't see the value in bringing you on. They have to groom you too much to get you to a point to where you're going to do the kind of downloads that will generate revenue. Now that may not be the case for everyone, but if you're thinking about some of the larger networks, that's probably the case. If you also notice some of the larger networks have acquired shows that have been in existence already. Mm -hmm. So they can show, improve what their numbers are. They're not coming in saying, I have this great idea and I think I can do X, Y, Z numbers. They've been doing this on their own. Like, for example, there's a podcast called the receipts podcast and it's based in London. London, yeah. Yeah. And they were just um, signed to Spotify. I don't know exactly what the deal looks like, but I did meet the woman at Spotify who signed them and she said, we're not doing anything different with their podcast. We haven't taken it off of any channels or anything like that. They were already doing a great job at what they were doing. That Mm -hmm. tells you right there, it's not a bad idea for you to get out there and start doing your own thing and start really cultivating that audience and seeing what you bring to the table. So that way, if you go and have a conversation with the network, you have much more leverage. Now, typically, just like any other business, there are certain things that are set in stone, like the percentage. There is going to be a percentage split with the revenue share for your podcast, Mm -hmm. partially because they're bringing you the advertisers. They have the relationships that will bring the money through the door that you probably wouldn't have otherwise. Because going out there on your own and trying to sell advertising for your podcast is a challenging thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Unless you are going to smaller mom and pop types of brands. If you're trying to go to the aways of the world, the bombas of the world, the, you know, um, just all these bigger brands that are known for advertising on podcasts. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that as a, as a solo person, you prob- right. you really got to know somebody, you know, or you got to know an ad agency or something that has that account. Mm-hmm. So the benefit for you going under a network is they have those relationships and it's very much so turnkey, right? Mm-hmm. We can have conversations that you can't have or you won't have. Right. Um, but then that means there is a split there is a revenue split, right? And so you have to decide when you're going to have conversations with a um, podcast network, what are you looking for? What are your expectations? What do you want to get from this? What kind of support are you looking to have? There's a lot of um, podcasters that are looking just to be a part of a community. That works for them. Mm -hmm. It's not even about the money. It's just being a part of a community. Um, I know for the women on Maisie Media, there's a whole robust behind the scenes process that we take them through and conversations that are had and support that we provide so that you don't feel like you're indie, although you're a part of a network. Because I know of a lot of people who are a part of a podcast network, but they still feel indie. It goes back to the same thing I just talked about with book publishing. It's very easy to get that big deal or that big break that you think you want, but then still get on the other side of it and feel just as isolated and as alone Mm -hmm. And, and do it yourself. Like you're all, you're just doing everything on your own. So you have to really know what your expectations are. And if you have questions, you ask those questions up front so that you can know what you're walking into and signing
1: up for. Right. Going with your eyes wide open, it sounds like. But that's, so, yeah. that's such great insight. Such great insight. Um, but about Maisie, I've heard you talk about there being strength in numbers, um, just like you mentioned earlier. Could you share other ways that you think you're going to be able to leverage um, kind of the cohesive strength of all the podcasts you have on your network? Other, when you say other ways, what do you mean? So as you talked about the discoverability, for example, the fact that if um, a listener likes one person on your network, their chances are they're going to like another podcast. Um, so when it comes to growth and exposure, for example, what other benefits would there be for a podcast that joins your network? So
0: some of that is just like, um, I'm just going to be honest with you. Some of that is like private, private conversations that I would have with podcasters because that's for them to know, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like it's for me to, to share with them what that would look like. And part of the reason if I'm being fully transparent that I don't want to say that is because I am not in a position right now where I want throngs of people trying to be on Maisie media. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, because I do understand the value that we have in that the podcasting is really bubbling right now. There's a lot of people that want to get into the space. I get emails routinely about people who want to pitch their shows. I don't accept unsolicited pitches because, it, it, because I don't want you to think I heard your idea and now I took your idea. Whereas Mm. I may have already had that idea. You just didn't know it because you're not a part of the business, you know? So so the reason why I don't want to say I'm not, I don't want this to be a sales pitch for people to want to be on Maisie Media because I'm not looking to have people on Maisie Media, Mm -hmm. but I am looking to create a strong community that has the attention of the people that we are looking to service, which is women of color. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're, what I would be thinking, if I were a podcaster who were looking to be on a network, right, I would be thinking in terms of value, how are you going to support me? What does the community look like? What does the community interaction look like Mm. from the team members? How often will, and how often will I have communication with you and how much access will I have to you? Will I be able to ask you questions that boggle my mind? Will I be able to get clarity on certain things? Mm-hmm. Will I be able to cross-promote with other podcasters on the network? Um, will I be able to pitch ideas that I have for doing something bigger and outside of the box? Will you give me PR support? These are some of the things that I would be thinking mm-hmm. if I were a podcaster looking to get on a network. So you can read. What you want into
1: that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, that's plenty to read into. And so I love one thing that I heard when we were at the Bosselman Media event, where you said that a lot of people are always seeking uh, funding for their, their new ventures, and you want to bootstrap Maisie Media. So, from a growth perspective, given that you're not going to get that immense cash injection, What is your vision for Maisie Media?
0: My vision is, like you said, bootstrap because bootstrap allows me to maintain the integrity of Maisie Media. When you, and not to say that other businesses who get a cash injection or get fundraising don't have integrity, but what they do have is a lot of people weighing in on what they do and how they do it now, Mm -hmm. you know? And and I, I hesitate to use the word control because it's not so much about control, it's about vision. How can you maintain your vision, right? Mm-hmm. And so the vision for Maisie Media is for it to grow organically because I want to create a strong foundation of content that can serve women of color on all different fronts within their life, right? So Maisie Media, part of the reason that I came up with the name is because life is like a maze, right? mm mm-hmm. Sometimes you take some left. Sometimes you take some rights. You don't quite know which left or right is the right one, but you know, ultimately you want to get to that pot of gold. You want to get to that winning point at the center or that end point at the middle, but you Mm -hmm. don't know what that journey is going to look like getting there. And because we all have that journey and I know firsthand what that journey looks like, making all the switch pivots and quits, right? I want to create a space that entertains women along that journey. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, that, that because we know that the journey is long, that means the growth and you growing with us as Maisie Media, that's going to be long too. I want to be around for a long time. And I wanted to not only entertain you in the digital on-demand audio space, but eventually I wanted to entertain you visually too. I wanted to entertain you through books. I wanted to, I wanted mm. to be different mediums, but we have to crawl before we walk, right? We got to take our steps and find our foundation in one space and then eventually get to the other spaces. But I will say, you know, sometimes people make things a lot more complicated than it needs to be. My vision is just to entertain women along their journey. That's Mm -hmm. it. That's it. And what does that look like? It's going to continue to evolve and grow, especially as we continue to discover different ways to put our voices out there and to connect with each other and things that we are finding of interest to ourselves, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think that for me, it's just as simple as that. Like, I don't have some big grand vision that I'm like, oh my God, this is so innovative. You need to hear this. It's very simple. It's just like, I want to entertain women along their journey. Because we're all on a journey. I'm on my Mm -hmm. journey,
1: too. And I want to be entertained on my journey. (laughs) And I've definitely enjoyed watching your journey and enjoyed seeing you level up, especially for someone like myself who's fairly new to entrepreneurship. It's great to see women of color doing something like you're doing. Thank Um, you. And just speaking of women of color in general, we are the subset of entrepreneurs that's growing the fastest. Mm -hmm. And so do you have any advice for this cohort of women of color that they could really use to go the distance and use as they are also trying to level up as well?
0: You know, I have a lot to say on this, but I'm going to narrow it down to two things. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I'll say is pay attention to what's going on around you and who's around you. And not just people that you think are your competitors. Pay attention to industry stuff as well as just outside your industry, too. Some of my best ideas and inspiration comes from people that do not do the same thing as me, do not look like me, anything, right? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes what we tend to do, and this this is a um, a pain point of ours as women of color, we don't we look right inside this little bubble sometimes as, as competition and you know that i don't want to go too far into this but you know the crabs in the barrel and all that stuff right mm-hmm. so sometimes we're looking right around that scene like oh she got a podcast too or she she wrote a book too or this or that right And you're looking just at those people right out in your peripheral saying i gotta mm-hmm. one up them right no 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 you need to be uh, trying to one up becky out there that's who you that's who level you need to be trying to get on right Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. becky might be the the person that is attracting the attention of the investors and all of that right even if you don't want that investment you want to have your product your service your company your brand looking just as good as anybody out there who could attract the attention of investment and sometimes i think we sit around and we wonder why why I'm not able to get what XYZ is able to get, why I'm not doing what so-and-so is doing and things like that, because you're not ready yet. You haven't leveled up yet. You haven't gotten there yet. When I came to create Maisie Media, I didn't just go out there and say, I'm going to create all this collateral on my own. I'm going to do the logo on my own. I'm going to go in there and do a little clip art thing. No, I hired a woman. I hired a woman because I wanted to look I wanted it to look like something that I couldn't do.
1: Right. right. I didn't have
0: the vision for, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes what people, what people in our space, what they do, and I, I want I want you guys to know that I'm saying this out of love because I want everybody to be better and look better and come out strong, come out the gate strong, right? Some of these the most notable brands that you see, does it look like somebody just clip art that together in their kitchen? No. <laughs> it looks like Damn. Girl, you know? And and the women who are really, really doing it good, you can see that there's a lot of effort and intention behind what they do Mm -hmm. and how they do it. So don't come into a, a space thinking that you're just going to compete with these little people around you and that you don't have to pay attention to what's out there. You need to know what's out there because that's letting you know what the, how the standards are being set and If you want to perform at the highest level, you have to be able to match up to those standards. So invest your money, invest in knowledge. Uh, Really understand the space that you're getting into. Understand what branding, what good branding looks like. Understanding what good packaging looks like. Understand um, what messaging, good messaging sounds like. All these things so that you're not in a place where you're the underdog forever and you're trying to play catch up. Mm -hmm. Because I like to say, there's a saying that my cousin and I like to say, we like to say, keep it simple, but make it feel big. Right. You keep it simple and make it feel big. The simplicity in it is that you just went and hired somebody to go execute your brand, you know, your brand portfolio for you. Mm -hmm. Make it feel big is when you put it out there, it looks like, oh, she could could show up in Target. Oh, I see her. You know, that's how you want it to feel, right? Mm -hmm. And then my second thing is do your research. Do not believe that notion that if you build it, they will come because they won't come if it's not something that they want, right? Now, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel and recreate things, but find that white space, right? Find Mm -hmm. that space that hasn't been tapped into. Think about the problems that you're having. Don't go out there and just try and recreate the same thing that somebody else is doing because you think that they're winning doing it that that doesn't it doesn't work like that Mm -mm. you also want to know who you're talking to and why are you talking to them and why do they want to listen to you because you can know who you're talking to and why you're talking to them but if they're not listening to you you're talking to a blank wall and it doesn't matter anyway right Right.
1: Mm-hmm. so
0: it, it, it's 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 like some of these spaces I feel like we miss out on because sometimes nobody ever told us mm-hmm. We don't know and there's certain things that we're conditioned to do go to college get your degree check those boxes but some there's just certain things that some of us just didn't learn in college we don't know how to take those steps And then what happens, we go out there and we sign up for all the courses that's promising us a six-figure launch and everything, all the webinars, all the things. But sometimes those things don't even serve you because they're not telling you everything that you need to know in order to really succeed and achieve what you want to achieve. Especially if you don't even know what Your niche is yet, or Mm -hmm. what your idea is that you want to hone in on. If you don't know those things yet, give yourself some time to discover some stuff, search around, play around, because some of the people that have the most winning businesses are people who just filled a need that they didn't know they needed to fill. But once they got into it and started Mm -hmm. really paying attention, oh, there's a gap here, that's when they really started to win. And then also think about when you put yourself in that space. How can you show up in ways that other people aren't already showing up? Where mm-hmm. are some opportunities and some spaces that are left wide open for what you're doing, whether it be a product or a service, mm-hmm. but nobody's tapped into that yet. That's where you want to go. I'm going to give a quick example so you know exactly what I'm saying. There's this book called Leapfrog by Natalie Molina. And in one of her leap leaps, basically, because mm-hmm. they're all leaps, she says, find the open shelf and what she means by that is find the shelf in the store that's open nobody's even paying attention to that shelf right and put your stuff there so the example that she gave was the um the creators of this board game i I, it was it cranium i can't remember what the board game is but regardless it was a board game right Mm -hmm. These guys, two white guys who were early investors in the tech space, they created this game. They're brainiacs. They're in this different kind of space, right? Mm -hmm. They think this game is the best thing since sliced bread. It turns out it is, right? But that game could not be found on Toys R Us, Target, Toys R Us when it existed. Shelves, it wasn't on those shelves. It wasn't where you would traditionally buy a board game. You know where it was? This was early days. It was on the shelves in Starbucks. Mm. Nothing else was on the shelves in Starbucks at the time. Why was that game on the shelves in Starbucks versus in your traditional store where you would buy a board game? Because they knew that the Starbucks person, the person who would go into Starbucks and spend four or five dollars on a coffee was the person that would be excessive enough and eccentric enough and intelligent potentially enough to spend money on this board game that was a Brainiac kind of board game.
1: Mm. That was their
0: target audience. And there was no competition on the shelves of Starbucks. This is before Starbucks was selling all these different little products and things that they're Mm -hmm. selling now. So their, their board game did extremely well because they went to the shelf that didn't have anything else on it.
1: Hmm. So
0: that I hope that paints the picture so that people can understand why I'm saying that and what I'm saying when I say that. Even if you're doing the same thing as somebody else, find a space that is not traditional for what you're doing and go and try and be the first one to tackle and infiltrate that space.
1: Ooh, so much said there. That also could be its own episode. Thank you for that. <laughs> Especially because you have so many people coming into entrepreneurship and they're doing a lot of the things you've said. They're jumping in to do exactly what someone else is doing because it works for them. They're not taking time to understand who they are. Therefore, the money you're spending on that course isn't going to work for you because you have no idea who you're going to turn around and sell it to. So Mm -hmm. I really appreciate everything you've said. Um, and on that note, it's been so great to share your story with my audience. Where can the listeners connect with you after they hear the story? Or Thank that- you
0: so much for having me. This was this was a fun conversation. Um, they can connect with me by going to mazymedia.com, and that's m a y z i e media.com. And they can also follow Mazy Media on Instagram, and that's just Mazy or Switch Pivot or Quit on Instagram, and that's at Switch Pivot or Quit.
1: Great. Thank you, Ayanna. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. (laughs) I'm so glad you made it to the end of today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please go on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and write us a review. As always, don't forget to share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, anyone who cares to listen. We'll talk to you next time.